Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today, I'm joined by Nafiz Hamid, a cognitive scientist of political violence, a fellow at Artists International, an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague. Nafisa's research focuses on the psychology of radicalization and social fragmentation in Western countries. Nafis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. You wrote an essay for us on the neuroscience of those who join extremist groups. The essay was about why people join violent groups and what brain scans can tell us about their levels of commitment. And you were focusing on two groups. You were focusing on jihadis, people who join politically violent groups like ISIS. And you were focusing on anti-government far-right groups, such as those who stormed the U.S. Capitol in January. Let's start with what you think links those two groups. Well, they're both anti-establishment groups. They're both, um, they both see themselves as fighting an identity-based conflict. One, the jihadists feel like they're uh, protecting the Muslim ummah from the rest of the world and helping it to grow and expand. And the other one is is more of a mixed bag, to be fair. There's the, the insurrectionists. Um, some of them were, were conspiracists. Some of them were white nationalists. Some of them were just, you know, supporters of Donald Trump. They weren't uh, particularly, didn't belong to one movement or another. But nonetheless, they still felt that there was some evil out there, let's say, that is hurting them and their group, however that group is defined. And they ultimately felt that there was a need to rise up into a form of violence to defend their sides. Yeah. I mean, this applies to both of those groups. Exactly. Hmm. They felt the need to, in some way, get organized and go out and do things in the world. Yeah, so most of these groups, they feel like they have these very important values, and we call them sacred values in our research, which is just basically a subset of moral values, political moral values, that people treat with the utmost importance. They're like the the most important of your moral values. Mm. And despite the word sacred, there's nothing particularly religious about them. Uh, Someone who believes in secular democracy could, could hold sacred values like freedom of speech, or uh, equality before the law, for example, or jihadists might believe in strict Sharia or the expanding of the caliphate, or a white nationalist may believe in ethno-nationalism or remigration of minorities. So everybody, the content of these sacred values can vary all over the political spectrum. But what's core, what's, what's key here is that there are a set of values that are incredibly important to these different groups. They perceive those values to be under threat you know, the, the jihadists feel that their livelihood and the Muslim ummah's livelihood is incompatible with the success, especially the hegemony of the West in the Middle East and everywhere else in the world, or even with secularism, more broadly speaking. Ethno-nationalists believe that, well, because they believe in an ethno-state, they believe any sort of diversity or multiculturalism is a threat to, to their agenda. Right. And of course, anybody who believes in liberal democracy would feel that any sort of overreach in government or too restrictive laws on freedom of speech, for example, would be a threat to their sacred values. Right. And this is, I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the essay, that this distinction you draw between sacred and non-sacred values. Because I think the, the reason why it's so intriguing is it allows you to look across different political communities different imagined communities, and see that there are actually some similarities. The sacred values might be different, but actually what underpins it is this belief that they have to fight for something. Yeah, so the content of the belief system obviously varies from group to group, but sort of the broader psychological variables, if you will, which is the fact that you have sacred values, you have a group identity that it overlaps with those values. I mean, some groups groups don't necessarily have to be about values. They, they, they literally could be about like the color of your skin, for example. Um, but a lot of groups, like your belief in a belonging to a religion, for example, mm-hmm. like Islam, for example, would be a, a group that is defined by its adherence to these values. And then they believe there's a that there's some sort of external threat to this values and group. And ultimately that there's a a, a non-zero sum uh 
competition going on here that if the other side succeeds, we lose, or if we succeed, they lose. And right. so it can't, there can't be any win-win situation here. And you see that very clearly, of course, in the storming of the US Capitol, that that is a very much a zero-sum protest movement. Either one person becomes president or another does. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's sort of the basis for most of these conflicts is when when that perception of the threat increases against someone's sacred values. Um, and the more they feel that there are no other means to satisfying this conflict, to resolving this conflict, besides uh, engaging in violence, and then ultimately feeling like you're not alone, feeling like there is a whole group of people whether it's a few hundred or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who are going to rise up with you. And so therefore you're part of a, a movement, a wave that's going to come in and change the world. I mean, in the sense that we are talking about <clears throat> two disparate um, situations, one, of course, the storming of the capital and the other ISIS, but in both cases, people came from a wide geographical area in the US, from all around the US, and in ISIS all around the world, and they came to one particular location where there were lots of people who thought the same way they did. That gives them a certain strength, not merely strength in numbers, but as you're talking about, psychological strength. Exactly, yeah. I mean, so we're, as, as humans, you know, we're, we're social animals, just like chimpanzees, just like wolves. And like all social animals, uh, where we don't really, from a from a survivability point of view, from a physical point of view, you know, we're not impressive animals. We're not the fastest runners. Uh, we're not the best climbers. We're not the best at you know killing other prey. So, like all social animals, uh, our success depends on how well we cooperate with each other. Our survival is is linked to our sense of belonging. If we belong in the group, we survive. If we don't belong in the group, we'll die. And you see this with chimpanzees and wolves. Even they have social norms that seem to be more genetically hardwired in them. And when a wolf, for example, violates the social norms of the wolf pack, the rest of the wolf pack will ostracize that wolf. And what you'll see, what anthropologists observe is that that ostracized wolf will kind of hang out sort of out on the outskirts of the wolf pack, kind of follow along them, but never really be allowed to get back inside the group, depending on the severity of the of the norm violation, mm -hmm. and will ultimately die alone by itself. And so humans have the same wiring. The only difference is, is that our moral norms are incredibly plastic. I mean, all the diversity of cultures and religions and political and moral belief systems, because of our complexity of our language and our brains, we have we have you know we have culture and not just genetic hardwiring when it comes to what our no moral norms are, and our sense of what that group is is also highly plastic. It doesn't have to just be you and your extended family. It could be even these fictitious groups that we create, like the nation state, for example. I mean, the idea of being an Englishman or a Frenchman, I mean, that's there's nothing in nature that's like that. That's a purely social construct. And once you have that social construct, then all of a sudden that's your group. And, you know, we want to feel like that we belong in this group. We gain protection from this group. We gain esteem, self-esteem from this group, power, security, all of these basic needs that, that, that our brains are, our brains only have one goal, which is to meet these needs for us to survive. And once we feel like that that group is under threat or that it's fragmenting, whether that threat is coming from the inside or the outside, well, then all of a sudden now it starts to hit a sort of flight or fight mode. And again, if you feel like other members of this group are feeling the same way that you're feeling, and specifically that's fight mode, well, then we'll close in ranks together. And, and you identify at some point so deeply with your group that a threat to the group psychologically, physiologically at the level of the brain feels very similar to a to an attack on yourself, a threat to yourself. And right. so you'll respond in much the same way. Well, you were talking a lot about exclusion in some of your research. And the crucial aspect of, of the sacred and non-sacred values is that there can come a point where they merge. If people feel excluded, these values can merge and people become willing to fight and die, not merely for their sacred values, but also for their non-sacred values. That's right. So most of us, especially in the modern, very global world that we live in, 
um, especially in the West, we have really multiple identities. Some people may identify with their their ethnic origin. They may identify with their religion. They may identify with their their country of domicile or their nationality or even the, the city that they grew up in. So we have all these different identities that we have. Um, but that also means that these identities can be a bit fragile. If people start feeling like there is a potential for one of these groups to ostracize them or to threaten them, they may then turn to one of the other groups that they are also identified with to protect them. So for example, we were looking at um, the Moroccan diaspora population in Barcelona. And Spain is one of these countries that kind of ranks always in the very top, top three countries usually for radicalization, jihadist link radicalization in Europe. Mm. And uh, Barcelona region is like the primary hotspot. And so we found these young men, we did you know, a year's worth of, uh, on this study, it was about a year's worth of field work, multiple research assistants, hundreds of surveys, over 500 surveys. And we were able to get about 38 people who were, I would say, at, at, at a very early stage for radicalization. So these were not full-blown ISIS or Al-Qaeda supporters, but they did say things like that they supported an expanding caliphate. They said they, they supported things like strict Sharia over democracy. And they even said they would be willing to engage in some degree of violence for these issues, like mm -hmm. violently protesting or joining a, a non-state militant group on behalf of these issues. So, you know, I would say vulnerable to extremism because they already seem to be holding on to some of these values. And so we wanted to see what roles, how social exclusion might affect them both behaviorally and neurally. And this is and, where you played basketball with them. Uh, actually, yeah, virtual basketball. So what they did is they, um, they we, we invited them to the laboratory and they were playing a virtual basketball game, a, a virtual toss ball game, really, between three other virtual players, but they didn't know they were virtual players. They thought they were real players. They had they saw their pictures, they were Spanish looking men, they had Spanish sounding names. And in the control condition, each player passes the ball to each other basically an equal number of times. In the experimental condition, the three Spanish players toss the ball a couple times to the Moroccan player and then exclude the Moroccan player. They only start tossing the ball amongst themselves and the Moroccan player just sits there. And then we do a bunch of, I mean, it's, we do a bunch of post-experimental manipulations, manipulation checks. And while on a conscious level, this doesn't seem to really affect them too much, on an unconscious level, we know it, it is having an effect. And so then they get into the scanner, the, the brain scanner, the fMRI, which basically looks at how blood is flowing in your brain. And then through some statistical analysis can tell us what parts of the brain were active during what tasks when they were, when they were in the scanner. And when they're in there, they have a little joystick and they can see these values of theirs that we had ascertained beforehand were either sacred or non-sacred values, but they were all basically related to their political ideology. And then they had a scale, a one to seven scale of a willingness to fight and die. And they could basically say, one, I'm not willing to do anything at all, or seven, I'm willing to take my life and take other people's lives for this issue. Right. And what we found was, first of all, for, for all the participants, a part of the brain lit up for sacred values that's related to rule retrieval. And basically what that sort of, what we, how we interpret that is that um, when, when you have your sacred values, you're, you're not really looking at the full context and thinking in a, in a context specific way here. You sort of already know what your value is on this. You, you go, okay, yeah, I know this value. I know this rule. I know what I think about it. Kind of like, you know, people who are pro-abortion, oh, sorry, pro-choice or pro-life, you know, you're, you're not going to get a lot of complicated neural activity here. They know what they think on this issue if they, right. if they hold a strong belief on it. Um, and we have seen this already twice before in two other experiments that some colleagues of ours ran in the United States. What was interesting was this, is that the participants who had been socially excluded, that very same part of the brain that is associated with sacred values now started to fire for non-sacred values. So neurally non-sacred values started to take the form of sacred values. And not only that, uh, obviously people have higher willingness to fight and die for their sacred values and their non-sacred values just because those values are more important. Right. But again, because the, particip the participants who were socially excluded, their willingness to fight and die for their non-sacred values started to increase and began to reach the levels of sacred values. Because of their perceived exclusion from the group. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was experimental manipulation. So we can draw a cause effect relationship here. And so we know that they now um, both neurally and behaviorally started to treat their non-sacred values more like sacred values. And that's that's really worrying because if you're dealing with someone who is, let's say, an extremist, and you know that maybe 10% of their values are sacred, but 90% are non-sacred, that's, that's really good for you as the person trying to negotiate, compromise, or persuade them. Because that means that 90% of these values they're willing to negotiate with, they're willing to compromise on, they're willing to reason with and and, and think about in instrumental terms. However, they become, the, like they become like political values. You can be persuaded against them or for them or something different. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you're a politician working with another politician and you're both dealing with some piece of legislation that's a non-sacred value for both of you, that's going to be a very easy issue to to come to a compromise on. Or if you're two warring militias and you have a couple, you have some non-sacred values you have to you have to negotiate, that'll be a quick negotiation because mm -hmm. you're willing to give and take a little bit with it. However, the more values go from the non-sacred value column, so to speak, into the sacred value column, well, now the, the, the fewer values you have that you can actually negotiate on. And therefore, the more likelihood that a violent conflict is inevitable because the non-sacred values are the values you can negotiate with and the non-sacred values are the ones that you wouldn't be willing to negotiate with using most negotiation tactics. That and means so, that, sorry, carry on. No, so 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 the so basically what we're seeing here is that the social exclusion have pushed people much more closer to the edge of violence than when they were not excluded. So if we're talking about Muslim communities in the West being excluded from mainstream society or marginalized white people in the United States being excluded, that exclusion makes them more susceptible to political violence. If their ideology justifies it, yes. Um, which in the case of white nationalists and jihadism, it does. Certainly what it does is it makes the conflict more intractable. Um, for example, you could be, you know, I mean, I, mean uh, I use the term devoted actors in the, in the essay because that's kind of the broad framework. And devoted actors are people who are willing to commit extreme costly sacrifices to defend their values and their group. But devoted actors don't have to be violent. Uh, followers of Mahatma Gandhi were devoted actors. Followers of Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King Jr. were all devoted actors. These are people who were willing to give their lives in some cases for what they believed in, for their sacred values. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they were willing to take other people's lives. So depending on the actual ideology of the movement, yes, you're moving closer to the edge of violence, but that violence can be towards other people, depending on your ideology, or it can be violence against yourself, depending on your ideology. Or perhaps which towards, means... towards systems or institutions, something like that. Exactly. Well, when, we, when you've talked about um, the way that you could lower the willingness of people to use political violence, one of the ways you've discussed is that if you tell them that their peer group disapproves of the use of political violence, that actually seems to lower their willingness to use it. Yes, that was with the second study that we did with the Pakistani diaspora also in the Barcelona region. Now, this sample was far more radicalized than the Moroccan one. Uh, these were explicit of self-avowed supporters of Lashkar-e-Taiba, which is a jihadist group based in Pakistan that fights on the Kashmir issue. It's, it has associations with Al-Qaeda. Um, these people not only supported armed jihad, they supported armed jihad against the West, and they said they would be them, they themselves be willing to engage in acts of armed jihad. And so for them, we we did an experiment where, similar to the Moroccans, they were looking at the their sacred and non-sacred values, and they were judging their willingness to fight and die for each of these values. And then in the second part of the study, they could press a button and they could see the value again. They could see whatever rating they gave it. And then they could see highlighted what the average Pakistani member of the average Pakistani community in Barcelona, what they said about their willingness to fight and die for this value. So let's say you're looking at the value. Uh, I believe strict Sharia should be you know, the governance for all Muslim lands. You said, I'm willing seven out of seven to martyr myself for this value. And then you press a button and you see the rest of the Pakistani community said four out of seven, let's say. 
or or sometimes it would be the same. It would be seven out of seven. Now they thought this was real data, but it was actually an experimental manipulation. So half the time that half the time the community response was exactly the same as whatever they said, and half the time it was a little bit lower than whatever they said. And then they got out of the scanner and they reevaluated their unwillingness to fight and die. And a few interest. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say that. I just want to say the 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 aspect of this that I thought was very interesting, I mean, you skated over it slightly, but you talked about their peer group, not as, for example, Barcelona or about Spain, but specifically about their ethnic community, a community that they would already have identified with. Yeah, so this is this is crucial. So, um, well, first let me just explain the results and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back sure, to sure. that. So uh, on, the, on the neuroscience side, what we saw was that a part of the brain called the frontoparietal uh, cortex, frontoparietal network, was deactivated uh, when they were processing their sacred values. It was basically, you know, in layman speak, it was sort of offline. Um, but another part of the brain remained active, which was this ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is sort of a part of the brain that is associated with, with what you want. And the other part of the brain is sort of deliberative reasoning and self-reflection. So if I can just give like a regular, like a, a common example of how these two parts of the brain work together normally in everyday life. An example I like to give is imagine you're out in a restaurant, you're having a nice dinner. Um, there's there's the, the waiter comes by and gives you a menu for dessert. You see a nice tiramisu on there and you think, ooh, I might I might want to eat that tiramisu. That looks tasty. That would presumably be your your, your ventromedial prefrontal cortex saying, I want that. But then you think, ah, it's a lot of calories. I worked out this morning. I'm going to work out tomorrow. I'm not so sure. Presumably, that would be your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that would be active in that moment. And these two parts of the brain kind of communicate, and they're they're connected, and they and they sort of eventually come to a decision. One part of the brain wins out over the other, and either you're going to eat the tiramisu or you're going to hold out. And uh, that's just how all of our normal decision making happens. And when we found that people had very low willingness to fight and die for their values, which were mostly their non-sacred values, this is basically the normal activity that we saw in the brain. But as they increase their willingness to fight and die for their values, which then eventually on the high end become sacred values, we see a totally different neural activity. We see there's no longer that communication happening between these two regions of the brain. So the part that's associated with deliberative reasoning and self-reflection essentially deactivates and disconnects from the part of the brain that just basically says, I want to do this. So there's going to be some values on which there is no negotiation in the brain. It's basically the brain is primed and ready to act. So I mean, if you, to, to carry on your restaurant analogy, if, for example, the question was not, should I eat this tiramisu, but should I drink this glass of water? Perhaps there the brain has no negotiation over it because it's a sacred value to stay hydrated. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. If 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 it's if it's a sacred value and like, you know, you know, or you know, like if you're going to if you're gonna break your fast, for example, you know, there's no negotiation. You know that it's time for the iftar, this is the moment. You don't need deliberation and self-reflection. It would be a total waste of neural activity to be deliberating and self-reflecting on something that you know you need to do, that you want to do. Um and so eventually these kind of political values, like do I want to kill people for strict Sharia or for a caliphate, eventually starts to become like that in the brain. It's just, I don't even need to think about this. Mm. I don't need to deliberate on this. And so then the question, of course, becomes, well, how do you actually get people to deliberate and self-reflect? How do you get this part of the brain reworking again? How do you lower their propensity for violence? And we found that actually that experimental manipulation actually did work. When people saw that their peers uh, had lower um, willingness to fight and die than they did, not only did they conform, they, they, they lowered their willingness to fight and die, but those very areas of the brain that were previously deactivated, the parts associated with deliberation, self-reflection, now came back online again. And not only that, that rushing back online uh, of neural activity correlated with the degree to which they conformed uh, in terms of lowering their own personal propensity for violence. Mm. That suggests that perhaps there is a rewiring of the brain in, for example, those people who joined ISIS. I think a lot of the time there has been an assumption that the reason why these jihadis were able to commit such gruesome acts 
of uh, violence was because of the peer pressure and perhaps even the fear that it might be inflicted on you if you don't inflict it on others. But your research seems to suggest that there's also an aspect of the brain being rewired so that you no longer debate whether you should inflict this aspect of violence. You just do it simply because it it um, it would uh, propagate a particular sacred value you hold. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's rewired in any fundamental way. I mean, all of our brains are basically, I mean, the, 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 we did a battery of neuropsychological you know, tests on these people, including IQ and a bunch of other things. The wiring, so to speak, of their brain is is not any any different than you and I. It's just how the brain activates for what sort of issues is what changes. Mm. You and I may not see, like for example, you and I may have the exact same activity that we saw. You know, these jihadist supporters have. If, for example, we we were the question was. Uh, you know, about racial equality or something, you know, would right. you be willing to risk your life in order to fight for racial equality? You might see the exact same activity in the brain. And of course, these people, before they got radicalized, probably also that same, the same capacity for this sort of neural activity was always there. It's just the issues for which um, these parts of the brain now activate for have fundamentally changed. And just to go back to the the point that you brought up earlier about the fact that yeah we didn't say um, you know we we didn't say fellow Catalans we said the fellow Pakistanis in the Barcelona region they're actually yeah, ethnic you, community you chose a community when you were talking about peer pressure you were talking you you chose a community that they already felt attached to and you said this particular community feels differently to how you feel about it. Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 what we found in the study was obviously that peer influence works, but in terms of reducing violence, but it only works if you see those other people as your peers. Um, if you if you don't see them as your peers, if you don't see yourself as belonging to that community somehow, then the norms and attitudes of that community will have no impact on you. Well, that I mean, yeah, carry on. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, for example, if we told them that, let's say, uh, I don't know, some group that they think is their enemy disagrees with their level of violence, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't care or, or conform or lower their violence in any way. But this also, this finding connects to the first study, which is basically, you know, the more people feel excluded, the fewer groups they feel a member of, right? right. The, the fewer peers they have, and then the less that group whatever that group is that's excluding them can influence them through their norms. Mm. Um, so and, if and the, the broader society, yeah. Yeah, go on. And the broader society. So, yeah, so if the broader society wants to have an influence, a, a peer influence on potential extremists uh, in their midst, they need to make sure that those potential extremists on some level still identify with that broader society. They still feel like they are a member of it in some way. And the more excluded they feel, the less they feel that they're a member of that community, the more immune they will become to the influence via the norms or attitudes of that broader society. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, takes us towards an understanding of these two groups that we're talking about, which is jihadis who joined ISIS and also um, sort of far-right ethno-nationalists in the U.S., because in both of those cases, the people, for example, who rioted in the capital and the people uh, who joined ISIS, in both cases, they are very, very much a minority of a large majority because they are all Americans in the US, but this is a very small subset of 310 million people. The same with the Muslims, the people who joined ISIS, a very small subset of a much, much wider population. And yet, talking about your peer pressure experiment, they didn't care that the vast majority of Americans would have condemned the violence, the vast majority of Muslims would have condemned the violence, because this is what we're talking about now, they didn't consider those groups to be their peers at all. Exactly, yeah. And if you were to ask them, because they say things like, I'm fighting on behalf of America, I'm fighting on behalf of the Muslim Ummah, when you ask them, well, you know, the majority of the Muslim Ummah and the majority of Americans don't actually agree with what you're doing, they actually say, yeah, but this generation and the people who are currently alive, these people are all corrupt and, and brainwashed. I'm fighting in sort of this sort of this imagined community of the Muslim Ummah and Americans. And they say things like future generations uh, mm -hmm. will respect what I did 
um, because that's they think hugely, this generation is corrupt. Yeah, that's hugely interesting because, of course, I mean, you're right, in the American context, it's really intriguing because they say they're going back to certain values. Well, all of the people who you imagined believed in those values have now passed into history. Yeah. And then you say, okay, well, not only am I doing it for them, I'm also doing it for future generations that haven't even been born yet. So all of the people, the 310 million people of the U.S. today can disagree with me, but that's irrelevant because there's a billion Americans who are going to be born into the future and they will all agree with me. And you create these vast, and the, and the Muslim community, of course, the, the ISIS community, the jihadis did something very, very similar, reaching back into the historical Muslim communities and of course, reaching forward. And right. so you create these imagined communities that are so vast that all seem to agree with you that you can never communicate with. So you can never find out if they actually agree with you. And now you are one part of this enormous group. And so you feel the strength that you were talking about before of being part of this community. Right. And, and, and there's, a certain, there's a certain irony to it uh, when it comes to the, the insurrectionists and, and then the American situation, because the, the United States is one of these groups, like, like any country, like any nation that is basically a, you know, a fictitious group. It's not, it's not a natural kind in the sense that, you know, we as humans constructed this, this value system. And it's, it's not an ethnic group, really, in, in the classic term. It's not, it's not a race, particularly. Uh, it wasn't at all, for that matter. Uh, and so what is the United States? What is the UK? What is, what is France? What are these things? Well, it's, it's, it's values, but it's also values that are embedded in institutions, in government, in police, in 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 the court of law, uh, in scientific institutions like academia, in um, freedom of the press, so therefore things like the mainstream media. So these social institutions are the embodiment of these values. And what I worry with what's going on with the scourge of populism and as well as conspiracist groups all over the Western world is that they are undermining trust in these institutions. And if these institutions are the embodiment of the values, then what they're actually doing is undermining the group that these institutions represent to begin with, the idea of what France is, the idea of what America is. Uh, and then once that, that group, that identity itself starts to lose its groupiness, so to speak, Right. Uh, well, then people people still have those same, exactly what I was saying earlier, that need for belonging because it's tied to your survivability. You still have that need to feel like that there is a group of people out there who see you as a member of it, who are there to protect you and defend you and look out for your best interests. And that's exactly where then people start risking getting pulled into identity-based um, non-state groups. So it can be white nationalist groups, white supremacist groups, jihadist groups. It can be far right, far left groups. It can be, you know, even uh, even kind of more regional, uh, region-based uh, identities. And right. basically what you have is a social fragmentation, a falling apart, a breaking at the seams of this actual group called the United States or the UK or France or whatever. Those groups no longer have much psychological traction to it. Hmm. And this was something we talked about before that you, you're very much intrigued by at the moment, this idea of how you create trust in institutions and how those institutions lose trust. And I want to sort of make it concrete for the audience. And you were talking to me about these institutions and saying that when people feel that those institutions no longer represent them, they seek out alternatives. So let's make it very concrete if we're talking about uh, ethno-nationalists in the United States. If people feel that the media, for example, which is one of the key institutions um, you believe that holds a state together, if people no longer believe that the media serves them, then they seek out alternative institutions, which in this case would be alternative media. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, what happens is that people start perceiving that mainstream media is basically beholden to another subgroup within the United States. So some people may say it's the liberal elite. It's by the liberal. <clears throat> it's by the liberal elite. It's for the liberal elite. Uh, some people may say it serves the interests of not even just the liberal elite, but some small cabal made up of Hollywood celebrities and and you know famous politicians. 
or other people, maybe more on the left, might say that the media serves the interest, serves corporate interests, and and that's the subgroup. Regardless, right. I, I want to pause here because I really want mm. to. This is brilliant, and I really want to explain this for the audience because the the breaking down of United States media into smaller smaller groups and saying the media, which all of you Americans are familiar with, is actually being being conducted in the interest of a small group. These these this is exactly what you hear people say on the right of the United States. And the groups that you identified, either Hollywood or the liberal elite, are exactly the groups that they talk about. And I want to really sort of make it clear to the audience that the the um, the scientific aspect, the political science aspect of it, then also is replicated in the real world. It's not a it's not a um, intellectual argument merely about how these this uh, media breaks down. You see it in real world terms that people are actually saying, this is the liberal elite media, all of it totally. And not only that, I mean, I, I, I don't want to take the left off the hook here either, because while it may not be as acute at this particular moment in history, you do see a lot of the same rhetoric on the left saying that, you know, like Rupert Murdoch owns Fox News and Wall Street Journal. And so really it's just there to serve his political interests or the Koch brothers are funding a lot of reports that are coming out of think tanks, but then being reported on by right-leaning media. And so there's a huge, you know, corporate right-wing corporate interest in how the media is being reported as well. So again, while the violence and like the political violence associated with the left is not as acute at this moment in history, you see very similar rhetoric that does exist on the far left-wing side too. Mm. And we may see that growing as, as the years come. You know, maybe the next big threat five, 10 years from now will be groups like Antifa, uh, which are still quite fringe at the moment, even amongst fringe groups, it's quite fringe. Um, but that you know that could rise uh, in the future. There's, there's no reason why it wouldn't. It's happened in the past. The 1960s and 70s in the United States was filled with, you know, left-wing terrorism, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, there's this idea, regardless of where people fall in the political spectrum, there's this growing idea that this media serves the interest of another group that I am not a part of, but that they have a vested interest in convincing me of a particular narrative so that way I can be a pawn in their power competition. Mm -hmm. And that's the narrative that extremist groups are constantly trying to play on people, saying stop trusting these organizations, stop listening to them, stop watching them. And so people will tune out and, and be aggressive towards other people who do trust in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever. They'll just write off anything that was reported in one of those publications. But again, they still have that need to trust in something. They still need to belong. They still need information. So then they'll go on to YouTube or then they'll go on to Reddit or listen to some podcasts or whatever right. who are outside the mainstream, who they feel are somehow more independent, and they'll put all their trust into them. And of course, these people have no journalistic standards. There's no institution behind them like these bigger news organizations with fact checkers and, and lawyers who are looking over everything that they publish and who have a huge risk of being litigated against if they report something wrong. I mean, these are people who have no consequence in terms of if, if they're wrong, there's really no consequence to it. And the latitude by which they can be wrong is so much greater because they could always just argue, listen, I'm one person and I'm trying to do the best that I can. So if I get a mistake, if I say something wrong here and there, don't you know, you know, know, come after me for all my credibility because I don't have the funding of the New York Times. So they're, they're actually given a much uh, larger berth in terms of uh, the flexibility of how close they are to the truth. Yeah, I mean, you you've, you've touched on something I want to delve into a bit, um, which is also a little bit controversial. And that's that you've drawn this parallel between you know, the, the groups on the right, for example, Breitbart and groups on the left. Um, uh, I mean, the New York Times would be one, but I mean, even sort of more liberal outlets. And I think that's sort of intriguing that you've, you've taught, you've drawn this sort of direct comparison between the, not necessarily the far left, but the kind of the extreme left and the extreme right. And I think why it's so interesting is because there's something that, that I think about this when it comes to Trump supporters, um, that I actually believe that the calling of all of Trump supporters 
racist or saying that they are in some way culpable for white supremacy is actually mistaken. I think that it's a profound mistake to imagine that every person who voted for Trump was necessarily racist. You're maligning tens of millions of people. But whereas I think it's wrong to do so, you actually think it's dangerous. You've said that you think that by lumping together all conservative supporters with Trump and with the white nationalists, you think that you're pushing those people into a more radicalized camp. Well, yeah, and it's, it's, I would say it's dangerous partially because it's wrong as well. I mean, not only are not, not only is it not true that Trump supporters are all racist, it's not even true that all Trump supporters are right wing in the classic sense. So I'm interviewing people who are who are QAnon supporters or who are anons as they call themselves. They they support QAnon. They believe in it, and a lot of them are actually left wing people. Uh, historically, a lot of conspiracists, whether it's people who believe in the JFK assassination or 9/11 truthers, or people who believe in a fake moon landing or anti-vaxxers were more on the left wing than than on the right wing. And with QAnon, obviously, there's many more right wing people than there are left wing people who are part of the movement. But there are still nonetheless a lot of left wingers who are members of QAnon, supporters of QAnon, and specifically in the sort of yogi community, the kind of hippie community. So there's a big enclave of them in Bali, for example, of mostly Westerners who go and live in Bali. There's a lot of people in California, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, even very educated people in the San Francisco Bay Area who are very successful tech entrepreneurs and so forth. But these are kind of people who for, for decades have been anti-establishment, the kind of people who, you know, you could caricature by saying they believe, you know, crystals cure cancer and things like that. Right. They're deeply anti-vaxxers. You know, they believe that big pharma is controlling or forcing us to put, uh, you know, these vaccines into our body. And, you know, Bill Gates wants to just put nanobots into our system or whatever the specific belief may be. There's a lot of people on the left-wing side on this sort of hippie yogi community who are, who are avid supporters of, of QAnon. So first of all, you're just not describing the situation correctly if you start, you know, saying, you know, that they're all a bunch of, that all QAnon people are, are, are right-wing or all Trump supporters are racist. And ultimately, yeah, what you're doing is you're essentially sending a signal to that side of the community saying, you are not one of me and I am not one of you. You're, you're helping to really harden that boundary of identities between you and them. And as a result, you're basically yourself choosing to destroy that bridge through which social norms from your community could then enter in and influence those other communities. You're, you're cutting off that lifeline yourself by giving them these labels. Do, do you think in any way that you get um, pushback from people who don't like that equivalence between people on the left and people on the right? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I, I get I get pushback from every side, so from almost everything I say. Uh, because I think that the aspect of this equivalence that I think is intriguing, not merely in the sort of left-right comparison sense, but in the sense of devoted actors being good or bad. Mm. You wrote, for example, in the essay, you wrote that our research shows that underlying impetus to becoming a, a devoted actor can be harnessed for good or bad. Many of us are the beneficiaries of devoted actors from the past who fought for racial and gender equality, minority rights, and individual liberties. Today, devoted actors of the environmentalist movement are trying to apply pressure to divert the trajectory of a global climate crisis. That seems to me a very hard thing for the wider public to accept, that you're saying that those people who espouse political violence are in some way the same as those people who espouse political values. So if you think about the storming of the U.S. Capitol, in some way you're saying the protesters are just as politically motivated as the, the politicians inside, but just in a different way. Well, I would say that the outcome, obviously, is is very different from someone protesting for civil rights and engaging in civil disobedience than someone flying a plane into a building. I mean, obviously, the outcome of you know being a devoted actor in one movement has, has a very different consequence than being a devoted actor of another movement. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it just depends on your level of analysis. Sure. I mean, if you if you if you zoom out, I would say to kind of looking at the psycho and social mechanisms that lead people to be willing to lay down their lives for a cause. Yes, then you're going to see similarities across the board. 
across across different political movements. However, if you zoom down into the into the individual movements themselves and try to ask a different question, which is why is this particular movement gaining such popularity and such traction at this moment in time and this location, then you won't find that equivalency, right? Far left-wing extremism, if you want to call it that, is nowhere near as a big of a threat or as anywhere on anywhere near as on the rise as far right-wing thinking in the United States. So while the mechanisms may be the same, you don't have the same variation of its popularity in the country at this moment in time. Mm. Uh, and so then we have to ask ourselves, okay, so why is one so much more popular than the other? And then that's when you have to look at you know, political leaders. You have to look at the rhetoric of Donald Trump and some of the norms that he he mainstreamed and popularized. You have to look at decades worth of um, right-wing media and sort of the, the attitudes that it was pushing in terms of the dangers of progressivism. And the and and this sort of hyperbolic attachment to individual liberty and and sort of actively trying to destroy a lot of collectivist uh, attitudes uh, in the United States, referring to big cosmopolitan uh, cities like New York City as not real America, but instead mm. more ethnically homogenous, you know, middle America as being real America. And that there's actually there's illegitimate Americans and there's legitimate Americans. And so I mean, you can go back 50 years and see sort of how how the seeds of these ideas have been slowly planted. And going all the way back to the civil rights movement, where before the civil rights movement, you had widespread social welfare programs in the United States. And then all of a sudden, when the civil rights movement basically started arguing that, hey, actually, maybe Black Americans and other minority Americans may need access to some of these same social services, then there was a backlash from the right wing, who previously had no problem with these social welfare programs, when it was mostly going towards white Americans, all of a sudden start rising up and saying, hey, let's start pushing a more neoliberal attitude of pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, like it just, it just depends on the level of analysis, but we have to look historically, the Nazis didn't come to power overnight. You know, there was, there was decades, some people would even say up to a century of, of, of momentum building up to that moment. And I would say that likewise with the spread of uh, right-wing uh, extremism that we see in the United States, you can go back decades and look at the media, at the think tanks, at the politicians, and see how they all each contributed, not in a conspiratorial way, not in some way where they knew 30 years from now this would be the outcome, but more in a Frankenstein way, where there's sort of a building of this Frankenstein piece by piece, and all of a sudden realizing, what have I done? What have I created? And which is why so many you know, politicians who helped create the situation we're in were themselves so shocked when the insurrectionists broke in and, and almost killed them. Right. Does that mean then that you think this right-wing movement epitomized by Donald Trump is is not over and maybe not even at its zenith yet? I, I worry that this is the calm before the storm. Um, as And part of that is for reasons related to technology. There, there is, there already has been a migration from people who've been taken off YouTube and um, and Facebook and, and Twitter towards other platforms. There are nation states out there who will gladly offer, uh, you know, a home base for these platforms to to run on things like Vcontacte, for example, which is based out of Russia, uh, because it serves their interest to to see the United States more divided and weakened from the inside. And you know, I think this. I think Donald Trump himself has even talked about wanting to come out with some sort of social media platform of, of some sort that'll be less regulated. And then let's also not forget that you also have the rise of AI and deep fakes and deep syncs, where at least before you could you know show someone a video and people would believe their own eyes and ears. And at this point, you know, people may not even believe their own eyes and ears because you don't even know what to, how to discern reality from fiction at some point well that's so, uh, yeah now you were saying no i'm just saying that there's there's it's this intersection between you have you have technology that is going to lead to more and more uncertainty in the world you have malicious actors that are going to actively seek to exploit this uncertainty to fragment people into smaller and smaller groups of belonging 
And so the onus is really on us now more than ever to, to, to try to be, as I say, as I say, as, as, these, as our trust in these institutions are declining, that means the foundation of this building that we're all in is, is beginning to rot and break at the core. And it's going to take a long time for us to heal these institutions, to find out ways to protect ourselves against these malign influencers from around the world and find ways to, you know, not have, you know, widespread deep fakes and deep sinks maligning uh, people's reputations all over the world. That'll take a while. But right now, it's really on all of us to be the scaffolding around this building, because we're kind of all we have left now is each other and our relationships with each other. Because society is no longer, can no longer stand on the shoulders of its institutions because its institutions are themselves struggling to gain the trust of society. Right. I, I want to um, move a little bit to the Middle East, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I just want to stick with what we were talking about, about people who are willing to sacrifice for a group. But I, I want to sort of talk about something very particular about the Arab Spring. Um, because you say in your piece that devoted actors are those people who are willing to make costly sacrifices for a group or cause. And it seems to me that the the mass uprisings that most people are going to be familiar with um, is the Arab Spring uprising. And I was very interested in what motivated so many people to go out during the Arab Spring. I still think, by the way, that that phenomenon has been enormously understudied. I think it's one of the most profound protest movements of the modern era, and it hasn't really been sort of intellectually looked at. Um, but the aspect that, I, that intrigues me is about the motivation of the protesters. Mm -hmm. And I like the, the distinction that Malcolm Gladwell has coined between strong ties and weak ties. Weak ties being the things that bind you to your acquaintances and strong ties being those that tie you to friends, people with whom you share values, sacred values in your coinage. There's a lot of overlap between those two um, ways of looking at it. So when you look at the protesters, I think you also have to look at what held them together in the face of danger. And this is where I think your discussion of identity fusion is so interesting. So you talk in the, in the, in the essay, I'll just read this line. It says, in our research, we have found two elements that are particularly important in the psychology of those who are willing to fight and die for a cause. The first is a particular kind of identity called identity fusion. This occurs when a person feels a visceral sense of oneness with the group. That concept of identity fusion would absolutely explain why people remained in the face of um, of, uh, of people shooting at them during the ups risings. Yeah, so identity fusion is is a feeling that probably a lot of people kind of know in terms of how they feel towards their loved ones, like their family. Well, I think I give an example in in the piece about like a mother who who runs into traffic because she sees her her infant son walking away from her or something, mm -hmm. while she still acknowledges that she is her own being and that child is is his own being. The the way the brain sort of um, relates to that child is one of a visceral sense of a oneness, almost as an extension of her in some way, which is the reason why she's willing to put her life on the line, run out into oncoming traffic, risk her life to save that child. And what you see happening, for example, in the Arab Spring or, or, or in other movements is that that same basic biological response that we have towards our immediate family now being extended towards an entire identity group. So it could be a national group, it could be an ethnic group, it could be a protest group. You don't know the individual members of it, but you still feel you feel fused to them, even though they're your brothers and sisters from another part of the world, maybe even that you haven't even visited yet. Mm -hmm. But you're all part of this movement together. But the the fusion doesn't necessarily remain. That's another aspect, actually, that's that's quite intriguing. I mean, the 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 example you give of the mother and the child very pertinent one because to some degree of course it's it's transcendental the the identity of the mother and the child both is um individual in that the, the mother would recognize that those are two separate things but then also there is a sort of transcendental element to it where they does there does become this identity fusion and one of the things that i found again to talk about the arab spring um, that i found so intriguing about it is to try to work out where and why that identity fusion then broke down subsequently. So um, I'll give you an example. 
I'm editing an essay at the moment about the revolutionary period in Egypt and how the protesters the first night in Tahrir Square had to had to summon up courage not to run away when the police began to shoot. And there's a quote by the Egyptian writer Ali Musallam, and she says that one of the ways they did that was by this collective chant of stand still. And having that repeating of the chant, stand still, stand still, and then you have the roar of the crowd respond to you, stand still, stand still, it gave people the collective courage to withstand the bullets and, and the batons and so on. And the reason for that, this is what we're talking about with the identity fusion being transcendental, is that the the experience of that collective chant, I mean, th this is what you were saying about the, the mother and the child, in some way it extends the notion of your humanity beyond the borders of your body. And so you don't fear the violence being inflicted on you as much because it's sort of extended across the crowd. If you accept that principle, though, how then does the fusion break down? How can you have, as we had at the time, this sort of um, identity fusion in these big crowds, but then it subsequently breaks apart. Yeah, so we have to distinguish between what we call trait identity fusion versus state identity fusion. So trait identity fusion is that this is just a trait that you have, that that, that it's it's a stable part. This is a stable part of your identity. You've you probably were raised with it. And it could be again your ethnicity, your your gender, whatever. Uh, you can put this person through all sorts of experiences. They will they will always be an American. They will always be a Sunni Arab. They'll always have this identity and it, you know, it's 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 just so ingrained in them. State identity fusion is something that's a bit more malleable. You may, because of a particular threat or a particular moment in time, may have this hyper-fused identity. But because it hasn't really been baked into you, if you will, it hasn't really had that same amount of time to become embedded into your psychology, it, it can come and go. You know, if the circumstances are threatening right. enough, you'll have the strong identity and your brain will respond in a very similar way to a trait-based identity. But once the circumstances are gone, it dissipates. And so this is, this is a problem that a lot of protest movements have to deal with, which is at the moment of a protest, there can be this, 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 this binding together of all of these disparate groups. But if they don't put in the work in the time in between to continue to nurture that identity, to continue to build it in to the to, to, to the public, this common sense that we are all part of this group, then what you'll find is that the identity will just dissipate and whatever identities they had beforehand will, will come to the foreground again. We're coming to the end of the hour and end of our time with you. So I wanted to ask you lastly about optimism. It does seem as if we're living through a moment of political fragmentation, and you've seen in your own research how easily people can be moved along that spectrum towards political violence. Since your the your area of focus is political violence in the West, do you think in Western countries that we can find a way to take the heat out of all of this division? Yes, but it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. I mean, first of all, we're going to have to, again, each one of us as individual people probably do our part. And while while it may be distasteful when you see your, your aunt or uncle or cousin posting extremist stuff online and you may want to disengage from them or or yell at them in the public section and in the comment section of their of their posts i would encourage you not to do that i would encourage you instead to dm them to get on a video call with them if you can see them face to face or have a phone call with them that's even better um, because that's much more likely to actually have an effect on changing their opinions. Um, also, if they belong to a fringe group, research shows that you should really take their perspective, listen to them instead of giving your perspective, and that'll actually lower their guards more. And ultimately, be that lifeline back into sort of mainstream society, if you will, once they're ready to make that transition. You can't force it on them, but you can at least make them feel like the door is always open and therefore there is an exit strategy for them. Mm -hmm. But governments and social media will need to do their part as well. Um, partially what actually gives me a little bit of optimism, funny enough, is the fact that while social media has been so divisive for society, 
there is an awareness of this. Most people, even those people who avidly use social media, talk about how terrible it is. They talk about how much they actually don't enjoy being on it, how they they feel FOMO, they do negative comparisons with other people. A lot of young girls are getting body dysmorphia, which has always been an issue, but it's getting even bigger. People say they feel depressed when they spend too much time on social media. So if, if let's say everyone was saying social media is the greatest thing ever and I just love every minute of being on it, then I would probably not be so optimistic. So the fact that people are on a visceral level realizing that we have to transform this thing um, makes me hopeful that there are that there will be new technological solutions that can square this um, square this circle by being able to maintain the level of interconnectivity that social media provides us. But instead of incentivizing moral outrage or in-group virtue signaling, hopefully we can find a way to engineer a situation that incentivizes doubt, uh, self-reflection, metacognition, critical thinking. And while I don't have the engineering solution to it, I do think the emotional appetite is out there in the public. Nafis Hamed, thank you very much. Thank you. You'll find Nafisa's essay on our website, newlinesmag.com. It's called The Neuroscience of Devoted Actors. And I hope we can continue this conversation on Twitter. You'll find us there at newlinesmag. You'll also find Nafis at Nafis Hamad and me at Faisal Yafai. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.